Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Matt Swain, so without further ado, here he is. This morning we are continuing in our series on reaching out. <clears throat> the first week uh, that, I, that I taught, three weeks ago, we looked at how God is a missionary God. We looked back in time, in Genesis, uh, when God called Abraham, and he blessed Abraham to be a blessing to others. And we look forward in time to the end of the world when people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be bowing before God in heaven at his throne. God is a missionary God. He always has been, and he always will be. Then two weeks ago, we looked at how we are a kingdom of priests. Not a kingdom with priests, but if you are a Christian, you are called to participate in the priesthood of all believers. And you are a, king, you are a priest in, the, in God's kingdom. Last week, we looked at how the word became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. We looked at how God, how Jesus left his place in glory in heaven and came and he gave the ultimate service of, of cross-cultural ministry and came to earth and uh, shared his life with us so that we could see what the word meant in living flesh and blood. He didn't just do that just so, just so that we could watch him, but he did that so that we could follow his example. This morning, if you turn with me to Romans 10, verses 13 to 15, we're going to look at our next steps, the actions. What, so, so we move into our neighborhood. What do we do now? What is our next step? Romans 10, 13-15 For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one who they have not heard? And that how can they hear someone, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I really love how Paul set this up. In these verses, he gives us a very logical progression. He starts with our ultimate goal, that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the destination. That is where he's heading. And he says, well, how do we get there? How do we get to this point where people will call on the Lord to be saved? So he takes a step back. And he says, well, how can they call if they don't believe? And then he says, hmm, well, how do we find that out? How can they believe? So he takes another step back. How can they believe if they have not heard? And then again, he steps back and says, how can someone hear if no one preaches? And then finally, he steps back to how can they preach unless someone is sent? So if you rephrase this and say it the other way, you could say beautiful feet bring a message of good news for for people to hear so that they might believe call on the name of the Lord and be saved. In Paul's time, uh, he calls this the good news. The good news, we hear a lot. The word is good news. Sometimes it's translated to gospel. Gospel literally means good news. Sometimes when you hear the words evangelical, evangelist, uh, any of those words, they all mean good news. But sometimes we toss them around so much that they lose some of the meaning that they had originally. When we look back at Paul, when he said good news, there were two different contexts that we could look at. One is the Jewish context. What is he saying within the history of Judaism? In the Jewish context, good news brings comfort 
and hope to Israel and for the world. So you see, Israel, after, after the divided kingdoms, after Solomon was king and the kingdoms split into two kingdoms, they had a very rough period of time where Israel went through a lot of different kings and Judah went through a lot of different kings. And in 720 BC, Israel, the northern kingdoms, were taken off into exile. And then a few years later, in 587 BC, Judah was taken off into exile as well. So Israel, the superpower, the once superpower, God's holy nation on earth, was taken away and taken into exile far away from their homes and from their lands. They did return to their, to their homelands 70 years later, but they never returned to a land and they never resumed that full superpower status that they had under David and Solomon and Saul. So throughout their history, from the, from the times that they were taken into exile until the time Jesus came, they were looking for the heir to David's throne, the person who would come and reinstate this kingdom, this holy kingdom that God had planned for them. They were waiting for someone to come and rescue them and save them and reinstitute the kingdom. They were waiting for this hope. And Isaiah said, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. You see, for for generations, people were living in oppression under, under other nations, under other rulers. And this wasn't the way it was supposed to be. They were waiting for God to come and reset up his kingdom in their lives. So when Paul says good news, part of it captures the feeling that the Israelites had of being separated, of being oppressed, of being ruled by what they considered heathen rulers, the Romans. And they were really anxious and really waiting for God to come and reinstitute his kingdom in their land. The other thing Paul have meant when he was talking about good news is within the Roman context, because this letter was written to the Romans. And in Rome, when you say good news, uh, immediately people start thinking of Caesar. Whenever a new Caesar was instituted, heralds would go throughout the land proclaiming, we bring you good tidings of great news. There's a new Caesar in town. And it would be calling everyone to a, a new allegiance to the new, the new Caesar. It was reminding people, hey, there's a new guy in town. He's in charge. You better, you better shape up. Get ready. He's in charge. Give your allegiance to him. Don't give your allegiance to anyone else because he's the one who holds the power. So when Paul says, I bring you, how, when he talks about good news, it, in the Romans, it would bring out this, this feeling of a herald running through town with not just read all about it, read all about it, but a sense of like this is a, has authority behind it. So for us, as we think about taking the good news, the first step is wondering, do we have an idea of what good news means in our own lives? Uh, when we were in Spain, we worked, uh, we worked with a lot of uh, students that came from a college in, at Texas A&M. And uh, the college pastor, I remember talking with him one time, and he said, he, he said, we get students from all different denominations, all different backgrounds. He says, when they come, and, the, and I start to hang out with them, we start to talk, he says, he said, the ones that come from Calvinistic backgrounds, he can tell me all, they can tell me all about predestination and how that works and all the theology behind it. And it's like, it's great. It's wonderful. He's saying people come from Baptist backgrounds. They can tell me all about like why you need to be baptized and this and that. And it's great and it's wonderful. He said, but one thing I've noticed, he said, when I ask him, Hey, can you, can you explain the gospel to me? He says that they, uh, they tend to falter and stutter and they, they kind of 
closed down and they don't really know what to say. They get, they get all tripped up in the words. He says, they know their doctrine of their theological distinctives very, very well. But when it comes to explaining the gospel in simple words, they get tripped up and they can't communicate it. Do you understand the gospel in a way that you could articulate it, in a way that you could share it with your friends, your neighbors, in a way that they could hear it and understand it? It's more than just knowing a bunch of stuff. It's more than just knowing the right words or or four principles or four laws. Do you know the gospel on a deep and intimate level? Is it something that you live in your life? Is it something that has changed you so greatly inside that you can't help but share it? You see, the gospel, we do need to understand it on a, on a mental and intellectual level. But if we stop there, we're never going to be able to share it because it's not going to be part of who we are. I like this passage because it's a call to action. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. There's a, there's a thought you, you see in this um, picture, action and energy and motion. There's, you have to move towards a destination. And remember, our destination is that they may call on the Lord and receive salvation. PD often says, whether you go across the room or across the world, it starts by stepping out. I think that is such a beautiful picture. If the first step is always the hardest. I don't know about any of you if you exercise, um, but I do sometimes. Uh, and uh, I've, I'm not a morning person at all. I am absolutely not a morning person. If I had my choice, I probably would stay up later every single night and sleep in later every single day until I uh, circled around the clock. Um, but when, when we started working, when I started working at the church, uh, you know, the, the day gets full and I was like, if I don't start running first thing in the morning, I'm probably not going to do it. So I've been trying to discipline myself to get up early in the mornings and go out and run first thing. That's how I start my day. But you know, the hardest part about doing that in the morning, the hardest part is when that alarm goes off and I look over and it's pitch black outside and I'm so warm and comfortable in my bed. And I think, why in the world would I want to go outside and get cold and run and sweaty? I don't want to do that. And if I manage to step out of bed and turn off the alarm and get out of bed, I'm good to go. I'm going to run. It's not going to, it's, I'm, I'm, once I've stepped foot on the ground, the motion happens, the momentum begins and it, it keeps, it keeps propelling me outside. Because I'm up, I'm like, I'm up, I may as well get dressed, I'm dressed, I may as well stretch, I stretch, I may as well go outside. Like, it's just a progression. Once I get out of bed. But if I snooze, if I turn off the alarm, it's all over. It's the first step. The first step is the hardest step in that whole run, in the whole morning. And so, it's the same way as we share the gospel. It's often the first step, which is the hardest. Once we make that first step, from there on, it becomes easier. Let's be willing to leave our comfort zone. We talked a little bit about this last week, about how Jesus uh, left where he was comfortable and came to earth. So often uh, when we think about stepping out, it makes us cringe or it causes fear in our hearts as we think about leaving the things that we wanted, that, that we know, talking to people. I don't know about you, but sometimes when you think about reaching out, I have bad images of what evangelism means about it brings it conjures up bad images in my mind of things that I think are not healthy, but we still have to step out. I want to share with you an experience uh, 
from my life, I am not an extrovert. If you know me at all, you'll know I'm not an extrovert. If I'm in a, if I'm in a group of people, I, I tend to hold back and let the, the extroverts, you know, kind of lead the conversation. And I'll jump in every once in a while. But I don't, I don't really like to be the center of attention. When uh, Lori and I worked in youth ministry, uh, the, the church that we worked at had a really good relationship with the high schools. And uh, one of our things that we do once a week, we would go to the cafeteria and we'd visit all four lunches in the high school and hang out with students. Now, when you're in school, that's intimidating enough because you, uh, you step in, you have your lunch plate, and you're like, you look for your friends, and you find them, and you make a beeline to your friends, and you sit down. Well, we came in, and we're adults, so it's not quite as intimidating, but we walk into this room, and there's 500 students screaming and, and laughing and eating their food, and we stick out, and you kind of feel all 500 students look over and go, who are they? <laughs> and uh, so... We started, we started doing this. At first, it was definitely the hardest day. But once you do it, again, you get used to it. And we would, each, each uh, meal, we'd sit down with students and talk with them and just uh, spend time hanging out with them. When we moved to Spain, we, we moved to this culture where there was no church. We didn't know anybody. We didn't have any points of contact, any points of references. Uh, but we had some students come. And uh, when they came, they got to eat at the student cafeteria. And I was like, Wow. I know student cafeterias. We've done that before in Ohio. So I remember in the summer after our student team left, I went and I purposely once a week go down to the student cafeteria and I walk in and they knew I wasn't a student and I didn't speak the language. So I'd walk in and, and the waiter would go, oh, hi. And, and what they did is they tried to uh, save seating. And so uh, even though it was a student cafeteria, there was a waiter and they would assign you a seat. They'd bring you in and say, here, sit here. And I was like, oh, this is great. They're going to sit me next to people. That would be a great way so I can get to meet people and get to know them. But in Spanish culture, if you're not with those people, they don't feel any um, necessity to talk to you. So you sit down, everyone says hi, and everyone turns their back on you. I I can't tell you how many meals I sat at tables where I was eating my meal thinking, I just wasted five euros on nothing. (laughs) But God bless those times. Even though I was totally outside of my comfort zone, way over my head in language, uh, God blessed me with some very wonderful friendships uh, that came out of that. Not everyone I met became my friend. Not everyone I met uh, did I get a chance to um, have a con- uh, some kind of meaningful contact with them. But I had a, a bunch of great conversations. I learned a lot of Spanish, and I met a handful of students who, to this day, are, are still my friends. So... I hear what it means to be afraid to step out. I know it's scary to step out. But it starts here at home. If you're in the fellowship hall and there's someone here that you don't know, that you don't recognize, it's your turf. You need to make the effort to step out. Don't encourage, don't, don't make it so that they have to do that. When you're at work or when you're, when you're in a place where you're comfort, comfortable, don't expect others to, to come to you. Make, make it a point and make it an effort on your part to step out. And even if that's against who you are, even if that's against your character, your, the, the, the person that you have inside. That I, like I said, even if you're an introvert, don't be afraid of that. In the church, we sometimes uh, get it backwards. We sometimes act as if Jesus said, stay comfortably where you are in your church pew, and allow creation to come to you so that they might hear the good news. 
That's not right. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Imagine if this week you had something really, really important to pass on to Pastor Dave. So you call the office and you get me. And I answer and you say, I have this very, very important message for Pastor Dave. Can, can you pass this along to him? I'm like, sure. So I get out paper and pen and you tell me the message. I write it down. I post it on my desk. You know, a week goes by. And it was a really important message. Pastor Dave doesn't get back to you. Eventually, you get, you get in touch with Pastor Dave, and he's like, oh, I never heard that. So he comes into my office one day. He says, hey, I, I was talking with so-and-so, and they said that they left a message. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's right here on my desk. I've been saving it for you. I've been waiting for you to ask. Is that how it works to be a messenger? Sometimes in the church, we, we act like that as messengers. We have this great message, this important message, and we hold on to it. We just keep it at our desk. We keep it with us, but we, are, we don't pass it along. A messenger isn't any good if he doesn't share his message. From the beginning of the early church, programs have always been part of the church. In Acts, one of the first things the church did was set up a, a way to actively take care of orphans and widows. However, sometimes when it comes to reaching out, I believe that we allow programs to usurp uh, our personal responsibility. It doesn't mean that programs are bad. Programs have always been good, have always been useful, have always been a part of the church and what the church does to reach others. This past, uh, past couple of weeks, I've been reading this book on World War II, the history of World War II. And it was very insightful. I, I, I knew certain parts of different parts of the history, but some of the things were brand new to me. One of the things that was interesting, uh, when the generals of the Allied forces, when they went into World War II, it was the first time where they had uh, large scale uh, bombers. And a lot of the generals were thinking, when they started seeing these bombers come off the factory uh, lots, they're like, wow, this is awesome. We have all these great bombers. We can bomb the Axis powers into submission. We'll just send in bombers, and we'll save so many lives because we won't even really have to send in troops because the bombs will just do it for us. That was a very great fallacy uh, on their behalf. That's not true. Even to this day, even with the greatest technology that we have today with bombs that zero in on places until you send in soldiers you really haven't secured secured the the area that you're trying to take oftentimes in the church um i think the programs that we have are are like those bombing missions they're useful they're helpful they help us they uh they they plow the land they they make it ready for the soldiers to come in but they don't finish off the work you ultimately need people down in the trenches, down face-to-face, doing the work that needs to be done. And uh, so, so our, our programs are good, our programs are useful, but there is a limit to their capabilities. There's a limit to what they can do. Also, as we think about this message, we need to remember that we live in a very noisy world. I was thinking about this as I was trying to think, how many messages do I see every day? I mean, I have text messages, emails, then, you know, ads on TV. When you open a website, when you open a web page, there's like, there's an ad across the top, ads down the sides. And, and if you type in a certain word in Google, it finds your word and it tells you all these other things that might go along with the word you're looking for. They're all ads. And so we live in this very noisy world. Everywhere we go, there's something trying to capture our attention, trying to, to get a hold of us. And so in that, we need to remember that the manner in which we deliver our message is a message in itself. 
The manner in which we deliver our message is a message in itself. I cannot stand spam. Does anyone anyone feel the same way? I can't stand it. I open my email every day, and there is a. I, ha- I have upwards of a couple hundred spam emails every day. My spam uh, folder gets so full, I kind of glance through it, look for real emails, and then I just hit delete all. Because I'm like, there's so much junk in there, I don't even, I mean, it's just, I, I don't know. I'm not going to take the time. It's all gone. I get so frustrated with spam because it wastes my time. It takes, it makes, it helps, sometimes it makes me miss legitimate emails. Sometimes legitimate emails accidentally get in the spam folder and they get deleted with everyone else's. Um, but sometimes as we think about reaching out, it's easy to think with the mindset of a spammer. Something like, I don't care how many people I offend with my message because of the one or two who may respond. Spammers wouldn't do what they do if it didn't work, but how many more people do they turn off to their products? In the church, we need to be be cautious not to follow the methodology of the world. As we think about how we communicate the gospel, we need to realize that how we communicate it is a message in itself. We also need to remember uh, uh, that our our relationship trumps pure information. Uh, I was reading uh, I was reading about ads, trying to see how many ads we see in a week. I read maybe 3,000 a day, maybe 1,500 a day. No one was really sure, and there weren't any solid numbers, so I, I, I wasn't sure. But when I was reading, trying to find out how many ads we see a day, I found uh, this guy who said, you know, I saw a couple ads online for the Bullflex or on the, on the television. He's like, it looked really interesting. It looked really cool. He's like, in the way they, they were talking about it, he's like, I was interested. He's like, so I called up some of my friends who had the Bullflex at their house. And they said, hey, why don't you come over and try it out? He said, I went over, I tried it, and they said, you know, we don't really like it. He said, I tried it. It was awful. And, uh, you know, his, his relationship with his friends made or helped him to know the truth about the product. And he valued his friends' uh, thoughts and his friends' um, relationship and, and their experiences much more than an ad he saw on television. We need to remember that as we share the gospel. You know, we can put the words out there. We can put the message out there. But people really want to know, as somebody that they know, has they, have they experienced this in their life? Would they testify that this is something that they, they think is good and true and healthy? Or is it something that's worthless? It's our responsibility to get the good news out. If you turn with me in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and 7, there's a really, uh, this is a passage that, that Paul said, I think um, captures a very well kind of, the heart of evangelism. Paul said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. Um, this past, uh, this, this spring, uh, Lori and I decided to plant some grass in our yard. We had we had five trees um, taken out of our yard because they're big, huge pine trees. You couldn't see the front of our house, and we couldn't see outside. Um, so we had these pine trees taken down. So uh, when the when the snow thawed, there were huge patches of dirt all around our yard. And uh, so we're like, okay, well, we have to plant some grass. So first thing we had to do was just wait till it got warm enough. 
And uh, then I started preparing the yard. Uh, we, we bought some really uh, some, some soil that was really rich. We spread it out all over the yard in the right places. And then, uh, and then I took the, the uh, grass seed out on, an, on a nice warm day, and uh, we spread it. And we didn't just dump it all in one place. We picked it up, and we flew, flung it around. The girls helped me. They liked doing that. Uh, we went through the whole yard, spread out grass seed everywhere. And then we went back over it with a rake and, and buried it a little bit under the dirt that we had just put out in the yard. And then there were some birds out there, and we chased them away because they were trying to eat our grass seed. And we, I was like, no, 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 we want it to grow. And then, uh, and then we watered it. And I remember that first day, I was like, I wonder what we're going to see. I wonder what we're going to see. And I was like so excited. I was like, this is going to be great. And so we kind of watched the dirt for a while, and I was like, okay, well, I guess we should go inside, girls. So the next day, it rained that night. I was like, oh, this is great. That's going to be so wonderful for the grass. And, uh, you know, I went out the next morning, and I looked, and I looked, and I just saw dirt. I was like, oh, man, this is weird. The next day, I got up, and I went outside, looked at it, still dirt. This happened for a week. I was, after a week, I was like, well, this is depressing. Like, we planted this grass. It said it was fast-growing. I mean, where is it? Uh, so uh, one Sunday, we came home after church, and I looked again, nothing. I was like, man, I'm, I'm starting to wonder if these seeds are any good. And uh, we went in, and later that afternoon, it was like a warm day, and the sun was out all afternoon. Later in the day, I went outside, and I saw little teeny tiny blades of grass just starting to peek above the surface. And I was like, yes, the grass is growing. I, I can't tell you how much I wanted to make the grass grow, but nothing I could do could make the grass grow. All I could do was make the circumstances around the grass the best possible so that it could grow. It's not our responsibility to make the gospel grow in people's hearts. Our responsibility is to plant, to water, to cultivate the soil, to make sure that all the circumstances are as best as they can be. And in the meantime, we have to be patient and allow the Lord to do his work. As we think about reaching out and communicating the gospel, I think one of the most important things in in doing this is that we are sensitive to the Spirit. Um, it's so easy um, to get on a e- evangelistic campaign or a evangelistic track and think that it's all about us or it's all about doing things better or doing things more, or speaking to more people or handing out more things or telling more things. And those, those can be good. But it has to be done within the context of listening to the Spirit. I have a friend that I actually met in that uh, in that cafe I was talking in that in that student cafeteria that I was talking about, and uh, you know we hung out week after week. We'd go to coffees, we'd go to concerts, we'd hang out and do stuff and talk. And one day I was sitting there thinking, "Oh man, I've been hanging out with this guy, you know, three months, and I haven't, we haven't. Uh, I don't know how long has it been since I talked about Jesus. Oh, I don't know. Uh, you know what? I'm going to talk with I'm going to talk with him about it tonight. I just decided I'm going to do that tonight." So we went out that night, we were sitting around, we were, we were talking, we were hanging out, and in the, middle, in the middle of our conversation, I looked at him and I said, so, how are you doing with God? <laughs> he kind of stopped. He's like, whoa. He looked at me, and he was very honest, which I love about Spanish culture. He looked at me, he said, how can you just ask that in the middle of the conversation? He's like, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. I don't know. He's like, what is that? And I, I, and I stopped, and I was like, I'm so sorry. In my evangelistic zeal and in my desire to you know, look good to people back home or whatever, 
I totally usurped the spirit. I just ran out and I did my own thing. He wasn't ready to talk about that that night. I wasn't being attentive to the spirit. If I had been, the spirit would have said, you know, hold, hold off. It's not time right now. So there are times where you may just ask somebody point blank like that and they will just come out and they want to have a conversation. And there may be times where you do that and they are like, Shh, they shut you down. The, the important thing is that you're sensitive to the spirit. And I can guarantee you that that night, my motives were not spirit led. My motives were selfish and ambitious on my own part. So as we're sharing our faith, we need to check our motives and make sure that we are following the spirit in how we share our faith with others. Turn with me now to Matthew 9, verses 37 and 38. We have a definite responsibility to those who have not heard the gospel. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus has been ministering throughout the land. He's been healing the sick and raising the dead and spreading the good news. And he looks around and he can see that the needs are everywhere. The fields are ripe. The people are looking for something more. And so he says, he calls his disciples to him. He says, you know, look around. Do you see what's going on around us? Do you see the needs? The fields are ripe for the harvest. The fields are ready but we're lacking one thing. We lack workers. So he says, you know what you need to do? You need to pray. Right now, start praying. Pray that the Lord will send workers. Pray that someone will send help. This task is huge. God can handle it. We just need to pray that he can send somebody. As we look around the world today, you could say the exact same thing. There's a, there's a map online, a map of world disasters. I, I flipped on that this week. Uh, I was a little overwhelmed by all the different colors and different kinds of disasters that have been going on around the world. The world is in a state of need. It's not just the world out there. Illinois is in a state of need. There is a, there are, there's poverty that's rampant here. People are losing their homes. Uh, the city has problems with corruption. There's problems with gangs, problems with drugs. The murder rate is up this year. There are problems here in our very own backyard. You may not realize it, but uh, this past year, for the first time in history, uh, poverty in the suburbs was greater than poverty in the cities in the United States. That's a first time. So there are needs around the world. There are needs in our own neighborhoods, in our own backyards. So if we follow Jesus, he would say, we should pray that God God sends someone to help. The task is huge. But God is up to the task, and he can handle it. And we should pray that he sends someone. So, that's the end of the chapter. Must be the end of the story, right? Oh, no. There's another chapter, but I don't think that uh, when it was originally written, there, there were chapters there. So let's read on. Let's read what happens in chapter 10, verse 1. He called his 12 disciples to him, and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits, and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, his brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out 
with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any, any, enter any towns of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So Jesus said, the needs are great. We said, we look around, pray that God will send someone. And then you see what he did? He's so tricky. He said, pray that God will send someone. And he said, go. Pray that God will send workers in the harvest. Now go. Go on, guys. Move along. Pray that God will send people into this world of need. Pray that God will send people to, to meet the needs of this world and share the good news with them. Now go. He asked them to pray and then had them become the answer to their own prayer. He didn't just say pray that other people will go. He said pray that God will send workers. Now go. Hopefully other people will join you. But even if they don't, go. Do the job that you're called to do. Sometimes it's easy to think that that this is just something that has come along in recent years. Um, that that maybe it's just uh, in, in our time that you know evangelism has become a part of, of who we are and what we're about. Um, but there was a guy named Saint Francis of Assisi. He was a founder of a of a Catholic order, the Franciscans, and he preached the gospel throughout his known world during the 1200s. And uh, one, I read this quote this week, and uh, I wanted to share it with you. He said, "It is no use walking anywhere to preach." unless our walking is our preaching. It is no use walking anywhere to preach, unless our walking is our preaching. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your heart and your desire to reach the nations of this world uh, with your message. Father, we pray that we won't hoard your message to ourselves. Lord, we pray that you'll give us the boldness to step out in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and our work, that we'll be able to share uh, the message that you have for us to give to others. Father, we pray that you will uh, make us sensitive to your spirit and help us to uh, re- only reflect you and what you want us to say. And Father, we pray that we will be a church of beautiful feet, as we bring this message of good news to the world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.